Hello, and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. I'm your host, Kerry Mulstein, and this is the podcast where we talk about things in the Scriptures that have become more real to us and that have made the Scriptures real to us because we believe there's a power in the Scriptures and we draw on that better when they become real to us, and we need that power. I'm excited for our guest today, a good friend of mine, George Pierce, uh, who teaches in the same department that I do, who has his degree actually from the same school that I do for, uh, from UCLA. His was in uh, biblical archaeology. I don't know if that's exactly the right title. He'll correct me when I'm wrong. Uh, I first met George. This will tell you a little bit about him when he, his wife, uh, Crystal, who I hope to have on the program as well, uh, she got her degree from uh, UCLA in Egyptian archaeology. So a very similar degree to mine, but uh, I first met the two of them. Uh, well, I'd met Crystal before. I first met George uh, when he was on his honeymoon at an excavation. If that tells you anything about George, uh, then, <laughs> then there you go. So welcome, George. All right. Thanks, uh, thanks for having yeah. me. appreciate that. Tell I, us a little uh, bit more yeah. about yourself. I graduated. Okay. Um, I uh, am originally from Florida uh, and grew up, uh, born and raised in, in Central Florida, in fact, my uh, my undergraduate work was at a college in Florida um, in history with a minor in biblical studies. Uh, and then I, I had no intentions of going into archaeology uh, or anything like that. I had one class in biblical archaeology uh, as an undergrad. And then um, through various uh, twists and turns after graduating from college, I realized that I wanted to go back to grad school. Uh, I wasn't sure what for. And uh, it was eventually sort of led to, to think about um, the archaeology of Israel. And um, then I ended up in a, in a graduate program at Wheaton College. For, for those who don't know, that's a, a Christian college, right? Uh, and, and your dad was is. a pastor? Or I'm trying uh, to remember. Uh, my, yeah, my dad was a pastor. Uh, he was a Baptist minister. Um, funnily enough, he grew up as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, um, and then sort of shifted and uh, became a Baptist minister. Um, and uh, we uh, always kind of grew up with the same sort of values and, and thoughts on scripture and, and, and primacy on Christ. Uh, so I grew up uh, in Christian schools it, it, all the way from four years old up to my first master's degree. So I was like solely steeped in the Bible um, and, and everything else that's going on there. And so I went to Wheaton college. Uh, we jokingly call it the Harvard of evangelicalism, yeah. um, because, uh, both of my, yeah, both of my professors actually, um, who, who taught me biblical archeology span were both PhDs from Harvard. And so we used to joke that it was a Harvard education at a Wheaton price, um, cause they put us through the same sort of rigor. Um, and it was really good. And, and I still work with one of them in the field, um, now at, uh, Tel Shimron in Israel. Uh, he's our excavation director. And uh, I got another master's degree at the University of York in England in archaeological information systems, which is a fancy way of saying computer applications in archaeology. And then I ended up at UCLA, and that's where I met Crystal. And uh, eventually, right, we met you and sort of things. And it was at UCLA and, you joined the church, and, uh, is that right? It is, yes. It was at UCLA that I joined the church. So I, uh, I was baptized in June 2009, um, so a little over a decade now uh from that date uh and then we were crystal and i were sealed in the Salt Lake temple july of 2010 um and so that shows you how fast right things things are kind of moving um and i but, i met uh, you yeah, in september and, 2010 and, uh, on your uh, wasn't that right? 
Celia, I think we actually met. I think we actually met before that. I think we met at RC oh, that year back in yeah. April. Okay. And I think we had mentioned that we were going to get sealed, and then we were going to to Jaffa because that's where we were working at the time was in right. Jaffa. Yeah, that's how I knew to come and meet you and, in uh, Jaffa. You're right. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So you and several other colleagues, uh, Ken Jackson yeah. and Frank Judd and, and others, um, yeah, came to to our working our working honeymoon um, as uh, she and I were working on the material at Jaffa. Uh, mostly Egyptian material, yeah. actually. That Ramses summer. third and stuff, so, right? Um, yeah, yeah, like all kinds of great stuff, um, and a lot of Tutmos the third oh, yeah. as well. So a lot of early sort of what we call it considered early late Bronze Age, if that makes term makes any sense. But uh, um, the beginning of the late Bronze Age, let's put it that way. Um, and yeah, and it's it's just gone from there. I mean, through various like again, various sort of things, we were brought to out here to Utah, and and that's just that. And, and uh, and now I'm celebrating uh, being promoted. Yeah, to congratulations! Professor. So yeah. that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's about it. And uh, yeah, so Crystal's degree. Um, it just happened that we were in the same department, and it's through her influence that she was studying Egyptology, and I was studying officially archaeology of the Southern Levant. Um, right? Those those two tracks uh, mutually sort of joined together, and uh, yeah, the rest is history, as we say, um, or yet to be yeah, written. I'm not both. sure. So yeah. that's where we're. That's where we're at. Well, yeah, a One of the things I love uh, talking yeah. with George, uh, I do uh, archaeology in Egypt, and I study and go to tons of sites in Israel, but I don't do uh, excavations in Israel. In any case, the, the one of the things I love about George is that he has his hands in the dirt in Israel all the time, and uh, that, that causes things to come to life in a different way. So we're going to talk about the book of Joshua today, one of those things where we're covering the whole book in one day, just like we or one week, just like we did Deuteronomy, and uh, that's just the nature of studying the Old Testament in one year. So uh, I will always advocate for uh, just having the Old Testament a two or three year course of study, but uh, I think there are a very small percentage of us that advocate for that. Anyway, so we're going to do Joshua, and uh, I'd just love to hear what insights you have from the. Uh, the things that you've done that have made this a little more real or helped you understand some uh, some of what's going on in Joshua a little bit better. Sure, absolutely. Um, I think it's interesting because Joshua gives us the, the opportunity, um, whereas they're, they're good um, ancient Near Eastern connections, especially, as you know, um, with, uh, with Egypt and, and the story of the Exodus. And <clears throat> we have other sort of um, things that we can pull on, whether it's like textual outside and, and we're looking at other ancient Near Eastern texts like from Egypt or Mesopotamia or, or Canaan or somewhere. Um, for these other books, Joshua is the first one where we start to get, in my opinion, we can start sort of like nailing things down archaeologically, if you will, um, although some things are very elusive. And so the biblical text that we would study in, in Come Follow Me has um, – uh, as we look at the biblical text, it's it's very much in Joshua. It's very succinct, and it's right. They come into Canaan, and right there's a little bit of prep, but then they they, they hit Jericho, and then they hit Ai, and then they go from there. And there's this incident with Gibeon, and and then they go, they start to move up north for the northern campaign, and and they do all this other stuff, and then they come back down, and and eventually. Once everything's kind of said, then then the land has rest from war, and and then the the second half of Joshua, this is where people kind of get bored, is because it's breaking up the land into the territorial allotments for each of the tribes, 
um, which for me is the exciting part. I'm like, ooh, this is really cool. And, right? and I think for them, it was um, an exciting think about part this. as well. This is where you finally get the place yeah. to live, and here's yeah. where I get my piece of land to to have my family raised on. Absolutely. And if we want to talk about fulfillment of covenants, Joshua, starting in Joshua chapter 13 and going forward, it's a fulfillment of covenant. It's what God had covenanted with Abraham to do is to give them this land. And so this is the fulfillment of it to say, this is your allotment. This is where you as a tribe can live. And this is going to be your home in perpetuity. So you're going to pass it on to the future generations. And then we see how important that land is in in the concept of not only the Old Testament, but also the Book of Mormon, where the big question is, how is the covenant going to be fulfilled if we're not in the promised land? Right. How does that work for us? Um, And Christ beautifully answers that when he visits the Nephites and says, this is your land of promise. So Joshua is really great. Um, But the the picture that it portrays is, is really interesting, because if you only read the book of Joshua, you would come across or you come away. Let me put it that way with thinking, wow, the Israelites moved in there. They swept through that place like a wildfire and then everything was rosy and it goes from there. And, and spoiler alert, judges one tells us that isn't the case at all. Um, They had some hard times and this is where we start to see things archeologically come in as well. Um, And so having that, just like you having the, the, the hand um, in the realia of the Old Testament world really kind of makes it pop and 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 come alive to me as we as we think about that. Uh, and maybe I'll just um, add just because we just talked about the fact that it's yeah. not rosy. I mean, there are things archaeologically that we're about to talk about, but there are experiences that, in some ways, our, our larger culture has recently had. It's getting further in the past, but that can help us understand that as well. I feel like the war in Iraq really helped people understand the difference between going through and winning a war and successfully occupying a place right that 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 was a complete the war was over fairly quickly but the uh, uh, efforts at occupying and controlling cities stretched on for a very long time and in some ways still is and i think that's what the israelites experienced they won a lot of battles that doesn't mean that there were enough of them to control the cities that they they'd conquered mm-hmm. and so on and so that's just a little bit of reality that people may be able to have, have experience and can think through and then apply to this story We'll give them other uh, little insights as well, but that's one I think everyone can relate to. Absolutely, and that's and that's something within modern memory. Um, I mean, my dad talked about uh, with me. So my father served in Vietnam, and their experience or their mindset, part of it, as as he is sort of accounted to me, was the fact that they were um, how do I put this influenced by World War One and World War Two. There's a lot of slogging, a lot of combat, and then you eventually occupy all this territory. And so in Vietnam, you had a completely different situation, and they're they're sort of trying to deal with how do we – are we not occupying this territory? Are we? We're still having all this combat. Like, what's going on? And so Vietnam or the war in Iraq or um, even Afghanistan, like, we have this sort of situation within modern memory um, that that some of your listeners and viewers may may sort of hearken to and say, oh, yeah – this is the situation. It's also spread out longer um, than what we think because Joshua, you, you could probably read it in one sitting in, in a Sunday afternoon and get through it. Um, but it, it, and it sort of like shortens all the events down. But I always liken it when I talk to my students. It, it's like the, the Spanish um, conquest, right, or the conquistadors. You learn about the Spanish conquistadors in, in history in the matter of, a, you know, half an hour, right, in, in school 
it was a process of, you know, hundreds of years that happened at various times. And, and same sort of thing with the Israelite settlement in Canaan. It wasn't just a shorter, like, here's, you know, a two year cycle and then we're done. It's much longer than that as we as we look at it. Um, and we can sort of like sort of just, just take things because like the biblical account, again, it's, it's very sort of um, short and succinct. And that led that led a lot of archaeologists, as you well know, um, in the 20th century to interpret it in 20th century terms. And so the biggest proponent or the biggest theory, at least for the, the sort of first half of the 20th century and going into the 50s and 60s, um, was that of conquest, just what the Bible says, right? They marched in, they took over Jericho. There's a little bit of problem at I, but then they like burned out of the ground and then they did all the rest of these things and all the rest of these various things, just as the Bible had said it. And a lot of that got influenced by World War II and and the concept, and I always talk to my students about this, the concept is, is one of Blitzkrieg, um, the sort of like lightning war. They go in, they take the stuff, they take over stuff, and then, right, they conquer things and burn stuff, and then that's it. And what archaeology started to show, and this is interesting because I, I actually um, published a paper very recently, um, but also uh, have been working in this in this area for a while, was in, in the hill country of Manasseh. And, and maybe so I can interrupt for a second. Is that the, paper in the, the volume from uh, Creation of Sinai that was published by the Religious Study Center in Deseret Books so people could access it? So sadly, no, that was that was a paper on uh, on Abraham oh, and the ancestors right. of Israel okay. and the Negev. Um, uh, this paper was published in a fetch oh, that's right. Okay. Jeff Chadwick. I, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Which, which may be accessible, but I can give you as the author, I can give you a, a PDF that you may be able to upload. So, yeah, or so, maybe we um, could get it on the can, BYU, can uh, instant, uh, uh, what do we call it? Yeah. 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 Scholars yeah. Archive or repository or scholars yeah. archive. So, uh, if we get that, uh, yeah. Yeah. uploaded, I'll put a link in the notes for that. Okay. All right, we can you do should that. read his other paper so that's in one of the, one that the ways. Talked about. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, uh, yeah. The more readers, the better. Um, and then, and then another paper that that I did on this area is is going to be forthcoming in a forty-eight chapter book that I edited with a colleague uh, entitled "The Ancient Israelite World." Um, and in there, uh, and in some of these other papers, I talk about the the tribal territory of Manasseh. So, if you think about Jerusalem, that's the tribal territory technically of Benjamin. And Judah, uh, directly north of them, right? So you have the tribal territory of Benjamin, in which Jerusalem sits, and then you have directly north of that is, is Ephraim, and north of that is Manasseh. And Manasseh is kind of split. Half of them settle on the east side of the Jordan, half of them settle on the west side. In the western section of Manasseh, and I'll get to my point here, um, when we take a look at the Israelite settlement, so looking at the tail end of the late Bronze Age, so 14th and 13th centuries BC going into the early Iron Age, the 12th century BC, what we see is a, a lack of um, destruction. So we don't have the same sort of pictures of sites getting destroyed in this area that we would expect or yeah, see like somewhere else. Yeah, like we see else, at Hotsor where there's clear evidence of huge destruction. Yeah, yeah, nothing like Hotsor Stratum 13, right, in, in terms of this. And so... Um, this led then a sort of shift, or at least a different proposal. Instead of proposing and, and adhering to a conquest narrative, just like the Bible has, one biblical scholar, Albrecht Alt, said, you know what, here's the situation. First of all, the Bible doesn't say in terms of Manasseh that they had like taken over all these cities. And what we see archaeologically is that they're sort of moving into the space between cities, if you will. 
So cities right, are spread out and they have their own agricultural land. And, and maybe I'll interrupt again and just but let our audience know that, yeah. that you can actually recognize, uh, say, an Israelite city as opposed to a Canaanite city by the kinds of homes they build, the style of pottery and that kind of a thing. So we can't tell uh, wh- which group we have, and the lack of pig bones, things like that. So you can't tell uh, which kind of society you're looking at. So sorry, but I, I just wanted them to know that. So keep going. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we have these, this situation where in between the cities and their, and their hinterlands, we have these villages that start to pop up. And they're very particular in style. So you already mentioned a couple of things. But, but one of the things that we see is that um, the houses uh, form a ring. So they're joined, uh, they're, they're built um, up against each other. So they form this sort of like ring, this kind of defensive ring, if you will, um, with the backs of the houses right facing out. And everybody's house center facing toward the middle of the village. Like a fort. If that makes sense. And this provides, yeah, this provides this sort of like open area, um, not only where people could meet and, and do things, but it's also where you would pen animals uh, at night. So everybody's flocks go into the same thing. And then they call, the shepherds will call out their own flocks right in the morning. Um, but some people have taken a look at this and said, this actually is reminiscent of living in sort of a, a nomadic society where you would do this with tents and do the same sort of thing. And so it kind of suggests this sort of nomadic background for Israel coming out of the wilderness wanderings for 38 and a half years, right? This is all this generation knows is nomadism. Um, and then they come in and they settle and they build their houses the same sort of way. Um, the house style, what we call a four room house um, in which you have this sort of rectilinear room at the back and then three rooms extending um, toward the front. Uh, these four rooms, this is characteristic. It also seems to be characteristic of, of Israelite. Um, society. And we see other things. So there's some pottery styles that seem to be kind of indicative, although that's been sort of questioned. Um, in the land of Manasseh, we actually have this crazy thing called the Manassite bowl. It doesn't even show up until the beginning of the Iron Age. Um, and so that's sort of been associated with the tribe of Manasseh. They're, for whatever reason, they, they make these bowls and they're different than Canaanite bowls because bowls are different. Uh, let's just explain it that way. So but interestingly, there's there's not like a conquest, and this this led then people to say, well, instead of conquest, maybe the Book of Joshua has it wrong, and maybe what we see is a, is a peaceful infiltration, and all these stories of conquest are later sort of fabrication to show how strong the Israelites were, and instead they kind of just kind of sneaked in quietly, settled, and then over time there was a lot of sort of gradual taking over of cities, intermarriage, things like this, um, to form a, a what we think of as a biblical Israel. This didn't get a whole lot of traction, but archaeologically, it makes sense as we think about this. Now, as we go forward, there are some other theories that people have come up with um, that Israel wasn't just Israel coming out of Egypt, that Israel had actually covenanted with other people. Um, And these people um, were um, peasants who were landless, and they wanted to get land to be part of this group that's that's coming in and dividing up the land, Um, or they're attracted to worshiping Jehovah, um, what we call Yahwism um, scholarly. Uh, so right there, they're, Yah, they're attracted to Yahwism in some sort of way. Um, they also had theories about saying, like, maybe they weren't coming in by conquest. Maybe they were just Canaanites separated out and and left cities and became rural and moved out there because there was available land and, and all sorts of other things. What, what really sort of, like, influences me as I think about this and I try and tell people and, and sort of see this is that, that no one um, theory has can answer everything. And by that, I mean, 
I take the Bible as very real and very authoritative. Okay. But I also take archaeology as very real because I can see it in the ground and I can trace the settlement patterns as I look at the maps and I can look at the pottery and I can go and, and, and write chapters about the houses and things like this. And so this is absolutely real. This is absolutely real. So then either I need to shift how I understand my reading of the Bible, if that makes sense. And I had to sort of square what I see in the ground with what's going on in the, in the narrative and, and sort of work with that. And that then leads me to walk away and say, um, all these theories, it, it, it's like a combination of things, right, in reality. Did they come in and conquer places? Absolutely. Yeah, and we can find some evidence for right? that. Did they move in? Yeah, we can find some evidence of that. We'll talk about that in, in right in a, in a second. Um, did they did they come in and move in peacefully? Well, yeah, Manasseh and some areas of the Galilee show that that they came in. There was no conflict with the big major Canaanite cities. They came in and and established right their villages and then grew from there and and all the rest of this. Did some people join in by covenant? Well, the Book of Joshua tells us that the people of Gibeon did, and we can see this in other places that eventually had Israelite. Um, material culture. So, for instance, I worked at uh, a site, um, Tel Dotan. Um, our audience may know or recognize Dotan. Dotan is the place where Joseph was sold into slavery um, by his brothers. It's also the place where coming up in uh, in your reading in the Old Testament, um, Elisha is at Dotan. And uh, when the Syrian king sends his forces, Elisha prays that his servant's eyes would be opened. And they see that that the prophet is encircled by chariots of fire. Um, and where do we get that phrase? Right. So that was at Teldoton. So working archaeologically at Teldoton, I can see that there is no evidence of conquest in right from the period. But eventually we start to see Israelite material culture. So this city must have come in by covenant. Right. So there was these people who were attracted to Yahwism or right, wanted to be part of the, the house of Israel in some sort of way um, and their holdings. We can see that, that, right, there's some ruralization. We can see that people are nomads and settling down. So all these theories then come together. And for me, that lends so much color to the scriptures, that it's not just a Blitzkriegian and they do all this stuff and it's over in a couple of years. And then, right, that's that. It tells me it's a long process and it follows exactly how humans, right, have to struggle with moving into a new place and dealing with a different population and trying to retain cultural identity and and working through all these processes, if that makes sense, to uh, to be able yeah, to think maybe, about that. Oh, and so that's going. right. Yeah, I was going to say maybe I can use an analogy um, that that at least is helpful to me, and hopefully it is to others. For a long time, our history of the church, our understanding of our own church history, was this five volume set of the history of the church. But we've had the Joseph Smith papers that is, we've just gained more access to, to more information, lots more journals, lots more letters, not only Joseph Smith, but a lot of other people and so on. And we're rewriting that history. And some of it is coming out in Saints, but a lot more is coming out in podcasts and just papers that are on Joseph Smith papers uh, website and revelations and context and all these things. And we're seeing this is a more complex history than we thought. And, and I think most of us are reveling in that. So fantastic to learn these other things about Edward Partridge and his interactions with Prophet and William Smith and his interaction. Some of them are great interactions and some of them are not such great interactions. And But it's a, it's a wonderful, complex history because no simple little history can, uh, it can give us a picture of all the complexities. And even with the 
huge amount of information that we have available now, we're still grappling with all of that complexity, right? That's a five-volume set that was covering uh, like a 100-year history. Uh, now we've got this little teeny book in the book of, you know, the book of Joshua. It's not five volumes that's covering like the same time period, maybe not quite as much, but but pretty close with even more complex things going on as you have this whole nation coming from one place to another, interacting with all sorts of other nations and settling. And the the more complex the picture to me, the more exciting, the more we can find out. And, and uh, as you say, sometimes the things in archaeology help us recognize things in the text that we just didn't notice. Uh, Like you said, the people who are making covenant with them and the fact that they're told that they should destroy all these cities and, and get rid of them. So they don't partake of their culture. But a little bit later we learn they didn't and they're partaking of this culture. So that means that there must be some cities they didn't destroy. And there must be some places that they did start to integrate with. And so the, the textual clues were there. We just didn't catch on to them until something forced us to look at it. And now we're getting this multivaried, complex picture that's that's more realistic and more fun, I think, because it allows us, again, to, to uh, 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 apply it to our life better because we can say, okay, well, sometimes God asks me to avoid all these things, and I avoid some of them. How's that going to work in my life? And that kind of a thing. So anyway, that's that's an analogy that helps me. Absolutely. No, it's a great it's a great analogy because if we think about it, it's the same, right? It's broad stroke picture of the of the history of the church, and we're starting to get sort of like finer details. And the, and what's interesting then is we have this broad stroke picture of the history of the House of Israel, um, trying to settle in the land, um, which volume two for that would be the right. book of Judges, right? So Joshua's volume one, Judges is volume two, um, and they're still sort of trying to work things out. Um, and in fact, the conquest is going to last from Numbers twenty one up through second Samuel five. So it's like quite a long sort of span, uh, but we're getting broad strokes. And, and as we look at archeology, span we start to just like fill in the picture a little bit better and add detail and, and color. And the, the interesting thing is too, is I think if we look at, um, as I look at sites like Tel Dotan um, in this region of Manasseh in the Northern part of Manasseh's hill country, um, just on the border of some of these bigger valleys to the North, um, or as I look at, at, at other sites, and we can think about like Hotsor and, and right, others, we're getting then like the fine strokes that we would know. Um, and I would sort of as analogy say, um, like in people's family histories, if they have a long family history with the church. So like my wife, right, Crystal, um, her like folks go all the way back. I mean, there are people in Nauvoo who are getting patriarchal blessings from Hiram Smith. Right. And we can fill in the thing. And so when we think about the history of the church, we go. Well, yeah, people moved across the plains and they walked, right? And there were all these companies and Brigham Young and then all these others. And we talk about this other stuff. And occasionally we'll get mentions, which is my part of her family, of the ship Brooklyn, which those people went to New York and then sailed around, right? All the way up to Hawaii and then back into San Francisco. And they lived in Yerba Buena for a while before coming west and all the rest of this. And those are like the the fine details that we kind of get out of archaeology, these sort of more family histories. Because... Obviously, I want to extrapolate that to the House of Israel, but we've got that big picture in Joshua, so archaeology gives us a little bit better, um, a little bit better picture. Although it's not always perfect, right? Not always perfect. And it's problematic, so we can even get into that um, at times because we have the the whole the whole sort of the issue of um, associating conquests and taking a, a very sort of hyper literal view of Joshua with archaeology and then trying to sort of like match these pieces. Um, sometimes with people on both ends of that argument with agendas. Um, so for instance, uh, Jericho, 
right? You've been there. I've been there. It's a, it's a great place to go. And you can stand there and sort of feel the history of millennia um, as it's been settled since what, like pre-pottery Neolithic times. So 8,000, right? Uh, or so BC. So we're, I mean, right, history, history, as we think about this. Um, but, you know, in, in the early days of archaeology, an archaeologist by the name of John Garsting excavated at Jericho and uh, in the 20s. And when he found a destruction layer, he immediately associated it with the conquest, right? This is Joshua. I don't think people had a problem with that because it was a it was a good thing. Um, then you come along into the 60s and you get Kathleen Kenyon's excavations at Jericho. And she says, no, this is not Joshua. This is actually an earlier destruction of the city. And in fact, there's no evidence here for any sort of late Bronze Age, early Iron Age occupation right, or even destruction, according to the biblical right um, situation that's here. Um, now, Kathleen Kenny definitely had a, a sort of anti-biblical um, sort of bias going on um, in terms of that. And so that leads us into the situation of the Bible telling us that Jericho is conquered um, and having a quite right in-depth sort of situation going on there. The Israelites are told to do this right, specific walk around the site. Don't say anything. Don't make any noise. Don't do anything. You just go out there. You walk around it once for six days. And on the seventh day, they walk around it in silence for seven times. And at the end of that, the Levites blow their trumpets and right as we know from the song and from scripture, walls come tumbling down, all this, that good stuff, right? And they go in and just lay waste to Jericho. <clears throat> um, so we have that, that situation versus an archaeologist who says there's no evidence here for any occupation, destruction, or anything during that time period. And what we have to then come with, again, to go back to scriptures are real, archaeology is right, giving us realia. How do we like manage the two? I either need to sort of adapt my reading of scripture or I need to sort of figure out what's going on archaeologically. And Jericho gives us that perfect place we have to do both um, in that we'll handle the archaeology first. Um, as we look at the areas that Kenyon dug, we think about these sites and, and they're kind of, for your audience, they're kind of stratified like a cake. So we think about layers in a cake. Um, and of course, the oldest layers are at the bottom and the youngest layers are at the top. Now, sometimes those cake layers where they may be sort of full in one area of the site, they're kind of collapsed in certain other areas of the site, if that makes sense. So as we look at Kenyon's excavations, and I, I point this out to students when we're at the site, is that if you look at her, what she found, she found right, this sort of pottery Neolithic, then there's like an early bronze two, an early bronze three, and then it jumps to Byzantine. And I said, so if you're digging here, Right. From something that's, you know, 2200 B.C., then all of a sudden it jumps to about 400 A.D. What conclusion are you going to reach from that? So what are we missing here? And of course, the students kind of like put things together and they'll say, oh, yeah, no, you're missing like, you know, late Bronze Age, Iron Age, all this stuff. So, yeah. So if you only dug in this spot and this is what you found, would that lead you to conclude that there's no late Bronze Age here? And they're like, oh, yeah. So I said, we have to sort of think about this, right? So archaeology, we have to sort of like start to really understand the archaeological nature of what's going on here and the people who dug it. I have been told yeah. by a colleague um, that, <laughs> that, uh, that one of his colleagues was digging in Jericho and had a whole set, and you, you probably know the story, right? Um, had a, a whole sort of slew of late Bronze Age stuff. And was told that when Kathleen Kenyon visited the site, 
was told by her, young man, there is no late Bronze Age of Jericho, yeah. even though he's looking at the physical. So there's a bias there, yeah, right? She, uh, obviously. she was selectively ignoring so at that, least some evidence yeah. um, that he could see, yeah. no, this so, is evidence. And she said, nope. Yeah, this is not. evidence, right? There's evidence that there is a late Bronze Age occupation here. The other thing that we have to sort of think about, we think about the walls come tumbling down, you know, because this is what we read in scripture is what the wall came, you know, came down. And I think our imagination and led by interpretations in the 20th century is that all of the walls of the city of Jericho just come flat down. And this is where I start to think like, is it necessary that all the walls come down? What if it's only a breach in the wall? What if that wall, which may not have evidence of being built in the late bronze age was actually built in the previous age in the middle bronze age. And as I know from my work at Jaffa, they maintain these walls. If you don't have to rebuild them, why bother, right? Just do the repairs and do the patches. And we, we have and lots of examples and so of in our Jerusalem work, and other yeah. places where the Middle Bronze Age walls were yeah. still in use in the Late Bronze Age. Yeah, and even into, I would even say in the case of Jerusalem, yeah. even into the Iron Age, you still have these Middle Bronze Age towers that are still being used. And so as long as you repair them and they're properly maintained, you can use them for right centuries and centuries and centuries. And so, you know, our work at Jaffa Mining Crystals as we were digging at the gate that was that was um, dedicated to Ramses II, we could actually trace through and, and look at the, the mud brick repairs um, from previously. So it was, it was even older than Ramses II. It had just been patched, and then the, the sort of latest iteration was putting in these columns that had Ramses' titles on it and honoring Ramses. But the gate was way older, and we could see the patches. And so when we look at Jericho, Right, we may say, well, the wall may not date to the late Bronze Age; it may date to the Middle Bronze Age. But if it's as long as it's patched and repaired, yeah. they're going to keep using it. Right? What do we mean by wall? Right? We're told in in Joshua that Rahab's house is built on the wall. So is her house part of like back to back with other houses forming part of the defenses? Which is something we see in Canaanite cities in the Middle Bronze Age. We also see it in Iron Age villages from from the Israelites. Is this part of this? So when we start to think about wall, we have to sort of shift our thinking and say, maybe it's not like the cartoons. Maybe it's not like our ideas and all the walls tumble down at the same time. Maybe it's a section of the wall that tumbles down. And, and you've been there, so you're yeah. familiar with what I'm talking about. There's a section of Middle Bronze Age wall that's yeah. fallen and forward. It, in fact, uh, um, at, at that Jericho. helped me picture this in a way that, that I hadn't before because – and this is the Italian excavation you're talking about, I think, right? Which – yeah, and you probably mm-hmm. went yeah. when I did, like in 2010. By now, you can't see this so clearly because it's been rained on, and the the mud uh, bricks have kind of are indistinguishable. Mm-hmm. But at, at the time, you could kind of see clearly. Uh, so walls were often, and, and you know this better than I. So correct me where I'm not saying this right, but uh, walls, especially mm-hmm. Middle Kingdom walls, were I mean Middle King, Middle Bronze Age walls. That's my Egyptian coming out Middle Kingdom, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> close yeah, to okay, same Middle difference, Age, yeah, same, same time. Uh, they would have what we call a glossy on the bottom. So this is like uh, a, a mm-hmm. pile of, it's not necessarily rubble, but just think of rocks and stuff where you aren't doing this brick by brick straight up wall, but you make the bottom part of the wall. It's almost like a foundation of a bunch of stones and and they're stacked on top of each other. And it, it's not quite as straight up, but that's the bottom big chunk. And then you build on top of that, these brick walls. and uh, And you could see from what the Italians did, uh, that there was a place where the brick walls had fallen down on the uh, it's kind of tumbled across the glossy and down in front of it, almost forming like a perfect little ramp to run up the glossy and into the city. 
And and that was a middle Bronze Age wall, which, as you said, is likely still in use in the late Bronze Age, which is when, uh, to, just so that everyone knows, that's when Joshua comes in. It's late late Bronze Age. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Being late Bronze Age. So yeah, it's it's and it's a perfect sort of thing to sort of say, wow, that fires up my mind. So when I think about what's happening here at Jericho, right? Is it any less of a miracle that not all the walls come down at the same time? Or is it such a miracle that the wall collapses across the glossy, forming this ramp, and then they all pour in through this one breach in the wall, and they all just sort of go from there? And they and, and perfectly, and here's a miracle for me, as I was telling um, a group of students when, when I was there at Jericho and had some time to reflect, I said, here's a miracle for me. Normally, in the ancient Near Eastern warfare, where they're going to attack is the gate, yeah. right? Because that way they have an, an in into the city. And they're gonna they're gonna attack the gate. They're gonna use slings and they're gonna use arrows. And in some cases, they're gonna burn the gate. Like we had a Jaffa, the Can- there's a Canaanite insurrection against the Egyptians, and we found a whole bunch of jars that were smashed. And and my call as soon as I saw them I was like, it's olive oil. We can test it, but I'm gonna tell you it's olive oil, and they use it as an accelerant to burn the gate. Um, and and so this is where you do it. I said, here's a miracle for me. Not only did this section of the wall come down, but it's not at the gate. Like the Lord had them avoid the strongest point where the yeah, Canaanites where would have all defended the forces are. and just put in a breach. Yeah, and just put in a breach somewhere else, and then they just pour in through that well, All the forces the in the meantime are across um, the so city have, ready for yeah. them to come in there. Yep, by the gate. And so it's, it's kind of this interesting thing where I go, I go, this is just as much of a miracle as whatever right our imagination is fired with yeah. – everything coming down at the same time. In fact, this is probably even more so because the Lord is very directed. And we see this in scripture. Whenever there's a miracle, it's very directed. It's not just a general, like, so it's very directed, very needful. And it's what they needed to experience at the time. And when that, when that mud brick collapsed or whatever, and, you know, maybe it was a situation where this section of the wall hadn't been upkept. And right. That's part of the miracle is that it had not been done. And then it just collapses. Yeah. 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 Still a miracle. Right. Still a miraculous thing. And we can still say and say, listen, here's a piece of realia. Right. And you can go online and see some of these pictures from Jericho. Right. If you don't have the opportunity to go. Um, but like you and I right, have been there. It, here's a piece of reality that says this happened. Right. It may not be what my imagination says it is as I'm reading, right, reading the Bible, but it really happened. And they were here. And then. Right. For whatever reason, this place gets abandoned. And the next time we see like verifiable occupation really post that in Jericho is uh, Iron Age 2. So the biblical period, Old Testament period, um, when you have Elisha coming to the spring of Jericho and things like that, which is still right, still there and still cranking out water, um, which is also a great sort of piece of reality. And and there are two other elements of that story, um, uh, of that miracle that you're talking about. Well, one other element of miracle and another of the story you're talking about. because remember that Rahab has promised that she'll be spared and she lives in the wall apparently, mm-hmm. or her house is up against the wall. So actually not having all of the walls of the city fall down is part of what allows God to fulfill his promise that Rahab is going to be spared. So mm-hmm. in some ways to me, this is the, the, the targeted nature of it is even more miraculous. God does what needs to be done, but yep, yeah. remember how I said you're going to be all right? It's not falling down where you are. I mean, we don't know where she lived, but I'm going to assume that, that it didn't fall yeah. down where she lived. And that's that's kind of fantastic. And and then it actually also makes sense to me that we have a period where it's not occupied because the Israelites 
are reported to have destroyed everyone and everything. There's not, not supposed whole, yeah. to be anything left there, so it should have an Absolutely. occupation cap. Yeah, so there, there should be a gap here. They're told not to, to reoccupy it um, in, in terms of that. And, and the beautiful thing about the Rahab story for me, just to sort of tie it, like put a bow on it and, and everything like that, is that because of her faithfulness in, in acknowledging like the God of Israel and hiding the spies and then sending them out on their way and they preserve her, um, she gets incorporated yeah. into the house of Israel and she's part of the genealogy yep. of Jesus Christ. And so in Matthew 1, what is it like, sort of like verse 5, Boaz's mother, right? Boaz who marries Ruth. Boaz's mother is Rahab. And so it's kind of, it's really an interesting sort of situation um, there that, that right, ties it in with Jesus. That like, here's this faithful Canaanite woman of right. all things and, and of sort of yeah. questionable reputation brought into the house of Israel and is faithful. And then right, becomes a And not an just ancestor. brought into the house of Israel. Boaz is a man of some means and respect. So, I mean, immediately mm-hmm. she must be given some land and enough respect that her son uh, or grandson. So however this works, you know, when you hear a son, you have to kind of know how many generations. Right, is yeah, it. Yeah. But it, yeah, yeah. But it can't be too sort, yeah. long because Judges is the period right thereafter. So it's it's within a couple generations. Mm-hmm. Um that, but is mm-hmm. is a man of influence and uh, means. So they really did take what Rahab did for them seriously as they said they would. Uh, and I, I think that's just a, a great element of the story. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a wonderful part. And so we can see, right, this this sort of like targeted, right, very direct, very purposeful um, miracle that that then comes out. And, and we can say, you know, archaeologically, I can start to shift my interpretation of what I read in Scripture. Right. Scripturally, I can start to say. Here's how I can look at the archaeology and start to acknowledge some some things here, and right, it just sort of like it comes through um, in terms of that. And so, right, the, the Jericho story is a is a great one um, for that as we as we look at it. Um, the story of I is much more complicated, right? We know the story from there. They move on to I, and they have some trouble because this they guy yeah. right takes some stuff yeah. and, and keeps it even though everything in Jericho was supposed to be left, right? It's either destroyed or it's just left. Um, and there's a good reason for that. And we'll talk about that in a second. Um, but right. We have that situation in which they, they kind of falter a little bit of eye. Um, you know, they lose 36 people in battle and, and you think you go ah, 36, there's a whole lot of Israelites running around. It's a big thing, right? It's a big deal for them to lose somebody in battle. Um, and so they had to kind of like, recapitulate for a second and and refigure things out and and right go through that process of punishing that guy and his family and then they go back to i and it says that they destroyed i and they burned it with fire and that's another question with archaeology is is the real question is which i because there's like three different sites that have been identified as such um and the one that that typically gets written up in archaeology textbooks is called et tel right which just means the ruin um, and it doesn't have any destruction again from this period. Interestingly enough, there's another site nearby, Kirbet Maketir, which does have late Bronze Age occupation, which does have a burned gate and burned all the rest of the stuff. And so it's a question of like maybe we have the wrong sites in some of these places because it's not an exact science. I mean, it dates back to the 19th century where we had biblical scholars literally traveling around with guides on camels, and they would come to the site and say, "What do you call this site?" And the guides would just say whatever the local name is, or most of the time just say, 
at tell. And they're like, okay, great. They write down at tell. And then that night they're reading the Bible and they go, well, this is like, it seems like it's close, right? According to this. And so this is what we're going to call it, right? This should be I. And we just may have the wrong yeah. site. Right? Because they were of, just in here. We don't know. That. We call it a ruin. Yeah. And you're like, oh. Yeah, we call yeah. it a ruin. Oh, well, that's what we call tell. it. That's ruin. And they, th- they get yeah. us a name. So, yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, they go. Yeah, it sounds great, and they, you know, they put it down. So, right, archaeology not being a, a an exact science at times, um, we have to sort of like take that into consideration when we have people who are like, well, the Bible's not right because archaeology says this, and I go, well, as an archaeologist, I know that sometimes it's not exactly as exact as we right. most of the time. So that's fine, actually, right? But, in yeah. terms of yeah, yeah, most of the time, right? As we, as we look at it. Um, and we, we also have to like re- rethink, I think, in, in, in terms of things, our, our understanding of conquest. So when it says that, that Joshua went in and right, they wiped out everybody and, and you know, the Bible talk about, right, they just lay waste to the population. And people get very concerned, right? What about women and children? What about, right, people who are innocent, had no idea, and, and all the rest of this? There are some scriptural things that I can come back and, and think about this. And I say, you know, First Nephi 17 talks about the fact like they already made their choice. Um, if we're really concerned about women and children, we can go back to King Benjamin's speech in the Book of Mormon. What happens to people who don't know the will of God, right, or don't know the law of God? Yeah. You're kind of given a pass, right? If you think that the Canaanite kids knew the law of God, then there's something weird going on there. Right? There's also other other interpretations. Our colleague Dan Belknap has talked about the fact that, that the you know, in the spirit life, they would still have the the sort of opportunity to learn about right the yeah. law of God and the gospel and, and to go from there. So there's all kinds of things. Archaeologically, though, I can say one way we can look at it when we have this this sort of like utter conquest as, as the Bible would describe it. The the Hebrew word is harem. And harem means not only is it like utter devastation, but it also means dedication, which is kind of weird, right? But this is what they do with Jericho, this is what they're supposed to do with these cities in Canaan. Is it's dedicated. It's dedicated, meaning that everything there, the spoils of war, technically belongs to the warrior who enabled the victory. Now, as we look at this in scripture, the ultimate divine warrior who enables the victory is Jehovah. And so, right, all this stuff is dedicated to Jehovah, right? It's all there, right? So utterly destroyed, all the rest of the stuff is there. But again, this is where the 20th century sort of rears its head behind us. Because when we think about harem and we think about destroying like men, women, and children and wiping out populations, the first thing that usually pops into our minds is something, usually in our generation and even before, is something related to the Holocaust, right? Where you have a very programmatic, developed nation state carrying out right various right means of destruction of peoples, not just the Jewish peoples, but also right those who are same-sex attracted, gypsies, all sorts of right sort of people who are anti-Nazi. Very programmatic, very like industrialized. There's no way, right, in the time of Joshua, they could have that sort of industrialized programmatic destruction. We also have the the thing, and and I wrote a paper about this for the the Sperry, um, the Old Testament Sperry last year. Uh, it's published in Covenant of Compassion by um, RSC and Deseret about refugees. As we look at the story of Rahab, to go back to Rahab real quick. She mentions that they in Jericho have heard of the exploits of the Israelites. And so they start to, they, they've heard about what they did in Moab. They heard about what they did right previously. Anybody, right, anybody with half a, a mind and a tent is going to say, let me leave the area and like, let's let whatever happened happen. 
And then when it's all calmed down, I'll move back, if that makes sense. So there's always this refugee population. The biggest analogy for, for audience would be Lehigh, right? Lehi's war in Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. They've already like had instances of the Babylonians coming to Jerusalem, especially if the Book of Mormon starts in 597. They've already had a couple instances of the Babylonians showing up. Anybody who's sane would say, yeah, let me get my family and let me get my tent and or at least go buy one from REI and we're out of here. Right. So they're going to have refugee populations. Right. So as we look at Harem and we look at what's going on here and, and, and we have this sort of moral problem of of what about women and children? What about innocent people? What about all the rest of this? I have to say, first of all, there's no way that they're carrying out a systematic programmatized annihilation of the population. Secondly, right, there's always a refugee population at some right stage that they're going to be there, right? Thirdly, then we can think about scripture and say, listen, um, this isn't like the Holocaust. This is, this is way ancient. And right. Doctrinally, we know that these people are given right instruction and chances um, later on or not held responsible right. for what they don't know. If they don't know the law of God. They just don't know. Right. And in terms of this, um, it doesn't right help us to, to sort of like assuage, but I think that's one of those tensions in the book of Joshua that we have to kind of like um, be at peace with, or at least make peace with until we're in the presence of, of Christ and he can explain sure. it all to us. Right. At which point I'm probably going to be, I'm going to have to rewrite my entire okay. archeological thinking and be like, Oh yeah. yeah. That makes sense. And, and I'll just say for the, <laughs> um, the readers or the listeners of this podcast that maybe have joined later or something, uh, if you want to go back to the one we did about the flood, we, we explore this issue a little bit more, and we, we make reference to the Canaanites then as well, but uh, this idea of uh, God giving people a chance, and when it doesn't seem to make any more progress here, then you move them to the spirit world, and you give them another chance there. And and uh, as you said, Nephi makes it clear. Uh, you also get uh, in Genesis 12, Abraham being told, yeah, your descendants will have to be in Egypt for 400 years because Canaan's not ready, and you, you, you couple that with First Nephi 17, where Nephi says they were preached to, and they rejected the word of God. That just kind of gives you the idea that uh, God was no longer, and that's 400 years of trying, no longer having success with them. Uh, so he moved them to a different place where he could hopefully have success. But there's another element of this as well that I think we actually can, can see archaeologically also, and that is um, at least part of the reason that there's supposed to be so much destruction. And as we've both said there wasn't so much destruction uh, as, as uh, you know, right. There, there, there's a whole lot of uh, Canaanites that are still around that integrate with the Israelites. One of the reasons for that destruction is God says, if you partake of their culture, uh, that idolatrous culture, it will lead you away from me and will lead to your destruction. And we can see uh, examples of the Israelites in places where there were still Canaanites, the Israelites adopting idolatrous Canaanite culture. We have lots of examples of that. We know 100% that it happened, for sure that it happened. Um, <coughs> excuse me. We we know that uh, God was absolutely right, that if they, when they coexisted, then, I mean, I would assume there were examples of the Israelites bringing Canaanites into worship Jehovah, but we also know that the Canaanites brought the Israelites over to worshiping other gods, and it happened exactly the way God said. So uh, this ends up being a complex picture as well. Absolutely. I'm uh, just as a preview uh, for things to come, and it probably won't be this year, but it, it'll be definitely in the next year or two. Um, 
my my co-editor on that ancient Israelite world volume that's coming out in November, um, he and I are actually writing a book about the archaeology of Israelite cult, like one more book about archaeology religion um, in Israel. But um, our our take on it is through through ritual and through how um, various things help to support sort of uh, what we call ultimate sacred um, propositions. That is, these are the beliefs, these are the doctrine that they hold true, and how does that reflect it in the archaeological record? And one of the problems that we have to go to to sort of add on or bolster what you've just been saying is that really trying to determine is this Israelite or is this Canaanite or is this Phoenician? Is this artifact, right? How are they using it? Or is it somebody who is culturally identifying with those people? And so we have this mix, and it's exactly what, what the Lord predicted through you know Moses in Deuteronomy 12 and Deuteronomy 17, that if you live with them, you're going to start worshiping like them. And this is, this is what we hear. We hear the failure stories. We don't hear the success stories of the Canaanites who come in by covenant and they start worshiping Jehovah, and that's a great, you know, it's a great thing. We hear the failures of when Israelites right, interact with uh, the Canaanites. And so we get Judges too, uh, in which it goes, it kind of harkens back to Deuteronomy and says, this is exactly what I told you is going to happen, yeah. and this is what's happening. And so we have that, we have that situation. And so when we look at it archaeologically, we can see that, that part of the reason, I think, for the destruction, especially at some place like Hatsor, is because of the proliferation of mm-hmm. Canaanite temples. Um, so as we look at things like, and we go back to the concept of harem, right, and this, this sort of utter destruction, really when we look at the Joshua text, we can see that that there's just, um, there's there's talks about battles, there's talks about right armies being defeated or kings being defeated, and there's this list in Joshua 12. But really, it really only talks about Jericho, I, and Hatsor being utterly, as it says, utterly burned with fire, right? Burned with fire is the big sort of phrase there. And so where we can see it, like Bethel and Lachish and other places, yes, there's evidence of a conquest, or at least the city gets destroyed at the right time period. Um, the burned with fire is the real sort of tell of like, this is right the sort of thing. And Hatsor, we already kind of mentioned it before, Hatsor is a classic case of this. And so you and I have been there and we've seen this, right? Uh, Hatsor in the palace, you have those big big basalt blocks at the bottom of the palace walls, forming the foundation of palace walls. We call them orthostats archaeologically. And the orthostats, and, and even if your audience wants to just sort of um, look in a search engine and do a search engine for Hatsor in the palace, you can see that the orthostats have been burned. And the basalt raw, the basalt stones that form those foundations are cracked. I mean, not just cracked, they're shattered. Um, and I did some digging, and I think it's in excess of 900 yeah. degrees centigrade. In order to get the basalt, well, to and I think they did way. chemical analysis so of some of the ash, tense. and you can tell how how hot it gets, and it was uh, around. So I, I don't do so good at the centigrade Fahrenheit conversion, but it was like around three thousand degrees Fahrenheit that <laughs> some of that ash was burning. Yeah, so it can, yeah, it's even hotter. It'll turn, and so if you look at the mud bricks, right? So the mud bricks would be sort of mud colored, right? Red, reddish yellow. It'll turn the mud bricks um, pink and even white. Um, in places to um, to when they're that hot. Uh, we had a situation like that at Jaffa in the Ramses Gate, again, when it was burned by a Canada insurrection, um, that some of the mud bricks had turned, um, had they were all the different colors. There was orange, and then it went to red, and then it went to this kind of like pinkish stage, and some of it was purple before you actually got to a white part where there, that was actually like a very, very, very intense hot spot. Um, and so to get the 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 basalt stones forming the foundations of the walls to shatter that way 
um, because of heat. Uh, you have a high intense heat in which right, the palace is burned. That whole district up there at Hatsor, surrounding the palace, were Canaanite temples, yeah. which were also burned. Um, and when we talk about the scriptures being real to somebody, um, during that working honeymoon, um, at the tail end of it, I took Crystal up to Hatsor and Tel Dan and Megiddo and some other like famous biblical cities. And, uh, and I showed her, I was like, this is like, this is the real deal. Um, this is hot source stratum 13. They've, they've enclosed, you know, parts of it in plexiglass yeah. so you can see the destruction layer. I said, this is, this is it. And I've actually had a conversation with the excavator of, of hot sore, uh, Emma Bentor, um, personally one-on-one. -on -one. And, and so I said, you know, hot source stratum 13, what do you think? And he was like, yeah, who else could it be? Right. We have this situation. It's utterly burned with fire. I dig a hot sore and I dig up the stratum and it's completely burned. And you've seen the destruction. I said, oh, yeah, no, I've been there. He said, you just put two and two together. There's nobody else it could be but Joshua and the Israelites. And so that's just staring at that going, this is the result of them trying to do what the Lord's commanded them to do. Right. To utterly sort of like lay waste these places to get rid of these temple districts and right, all these Canaanite worship centers where they're going to be right, tempted yeah. to join in in that worship. They're also de, um, all those kings that are destroyed. They're sort of taking apart Egypt's yeah. power structure yeah. in Canaan at the time. Right. So they're, they're sort of dismantling Egypt's power in Canaan so they can move in. Um, and all of it just says, yeah, this is real. Like this is real, real. Um, and you know, uh, I'll sort of unashamedly say I, I have a, because uh, it fell out of section. I have a little piece of a cooking pot rim from Hot Source Stratum 13 um, in my office in Provo, uh, just to remind me, like, uh, this is real. It got it got destroyed, and and uh, I sort of, like, pocketed this thing, and I don't advise that for everyone. Um, but, yeah, it was there on the ground, and I was like, yeah, this is, this is a, a piece of Canaanite and biblical history. Uh, to show me that the Joshua and the Israelites cool. were here. Yeah, and they even in the the some of the Canaanite temples there, they found evidence of some of the statues that had been hit with a blunt force to be knocked over, right? Which is exactly what the Israelites are supposed to destroy those temples and those gods. And so, uh, it was at least there they were really trying to do what they were asked to do. And one of the if we're going to make this real for us in our lives, then. One of the things we have to ask ourselves, and this is something we'll explore in lots of future episodes because idolatry becomes kind of a major theme in the Old Testament, but we have to ask ourselves, when God is asking us to get rid of unholiness in our lives, in what ways, are, in some ways certainly we're successful, I can say, okay, I'm going to stop doing that. In what ways am I not? And how is that affecting me in the same way that it affected the Israelites when they didn't get rid? of the idolatry around them, right? In what ways am I drinking in the culture around me when God has asked me not to drink in that part of the culture? And that's something we just have to explore with ourselves. Yeah. And I think, I think in terms of a spiritual lesson, and, and I thought about this quite a bit is that we, we have a situation in which um, hot and hot sore is a great example of this. And we'll, you know, we keep going back to hot sore, but hot sore is a great example of this because it, it is the physical manifestation of them following what the Lord wanted them to do. And so we have that. And there's this intense fire and right smashing of, of um, right representations of deities and, and destruction and, and all the rest of this. And I'm sure when they left Hot Sore, 
there's probably some refugees on the hills around Hansor who are watching the town burn. Um, the Israelites are kind of moving away and probably headed um, south uh, through right the Hula Valley there. Um, and I'm sure they probably felt good about themselves because they were like, yes, we did what like what the Lord wanted to do, uh, want, wanted us to do. But there's also this sort of like, then that fervor kind of dies away. And I think for us, then we have that situation in which we can say, I'm doing what the Lord wanted me to do. And it was real good. And I got rid of this. And then that fervor kind of dies away. And we kind of were like, okay. Because then we're stuck with, as Joshua says, the land had rest from war. It doesn't mean that they then like put up hammocks and just chilled out and went on vacation. The land having rest from something, right, or rest in the Bible doesn't mean you don't do anything. It means then you do what you're supposed to be doing. Um, and you're able to do what you right, have been commissioned to do, right, or what you've been ordained to do or, or however you want to put that. So when Jehovah has rest on the seventh day of creation, it doesn't mean that he stops doing things and just like puts his feet up. It means now he's able to assume his rightful place on the throne of the cosmic temple and say, right, now it's about maintaining right, creation and sustaining it. So it's about getting back down to like the nuts and bolts of everyday life. So we can have these spiritual highs like conquering hot sore, but then it's going to come down eventually. And we've got to like go through this plateau and somehow how do we maintain that fervor or how do we maintain that desire to continue to serve the Lord and not let things slip in. Um, and that's why I think the covenantal renewal ceremony yeah. in Joshua at the end of it is a, is a real like amazing thing because Joshua says, right. They go through the whole thing. They go through the covenant. He writes it out right there at Shechem and, and everything else um, in his tribal territory. Cause he's from Ephraim. So, all those of you from Ephraim can identify with Joshua on some sort of stage. Um, and Joshua says and gives him the thing and says, choose you this day whom you will serve. Right? If it's going to be right, Baal and all the rest of these, then go do it. Right? As for me and my house, we're going to serve Jehovah. And I think Joshua's first part of that is helpful for us. Choose you this day. Right? We may not have every day as a hot sore moment. Right? And and. Hopefully we're not burning down things right every single day, which would be bad. Um, no, right? Every day won't be a spiritual high, right? There's sometimes we're going to have to just go through like kind of the doldrums or like I just have to like keep going and I have to like stay on my guard. But each day has given us this opportunity to choose this day whom we're going to serve. And that's the beautiful thing is that it is, it is a thing that we can choose every morning. It's a thing that we can choose every hour. And if we mess up, we can we can have the opportunity to get back on that path every hour, every day. We don't have to wait until Sunday to take sacrament. We can choose this day whom we serve. We can choose this hour whom we serve. And it's just right following along with that and maintaining those that daily repentance that President so Nelson talks about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think there's a good sort of tie in there um, as we go through this sort of like spiritual conquest in, in our own lives. And, and try well, to that's just things. good fun stuff, George. I'm so grateful that you would come and help us go yeah, through this. Nice. Absolutely. I'm, I'm pleased to be here. I would, uh, at some point I can give you an update. Uh, we're headed to Israel this summer to go dig at Tel Shimron, um, which is right. mentioned in Joshua as being one of the sites that the Israelites, um, conquered. Um, so that means there probably means their army in the field, right? They beat their army and they yeah. considered it. Okay. Now it's part of the tribal territory yeah. of Zebulun. Yeah, which I think Jerusalem's the same thing. They but, defeated uh, the people from Jerusalem. It was probably down at Lachish, but they defeated those people, so it was conquered, yeah. even if there were still people there. Yeah. Yes, yeah. until Second Samuel right. five, right? So when David comes, so yeah, but uh, yeah, I'll give you an update on on what we find in the uh, in the excavations this uh, 
this summer, we have some some good promising areas of of Iron Age, right? So biblical Israel um, and some Second Temple stuff. Mm-hmm. So from the time of Christ, because it's right down the ridge mm-hmm. from Nazareth. So it's probably some place that Jesus would have walked by or had interactions with um, as he was as he was maturing. Cool. So um, we'll yeah, look forward to having you stuff. back on and hearing about that stuff. So. Thank you. Absolutely. And uh, to our, our audience, right. we hope it's been helpful and has made it more real for you and thus more powerful. And uh, if you found some insights that you think would be helpful for other people, make sure you let them know about it. And uh, we just hope that uh, this makes a difference in all of our lives. Thank you, George. All right. Thanks for having me.